Hello, and welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast by Nations Restaurant News and Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne, and I'm, I'm pretty full at the moment. I have been eating at a lot of restaurants here in New York City, and a lot of them have been Indian, uh, which is certainly one of the trendingest cuisines in the country and uh, certainly also in New York. And I kind of hesitate to talk about Indian food in this particular episode of In the Kitchen because my guest is Sam Four, who is of Sri Lankan heritage. Sri Lanka is an island nation of 22 million people off the southern coast of the Indian subcontinent. And I don't want to confuse the two. India and Sri Lanka because they are different countries and they have their own unique cuisines. In fact, both of them have quite a few regional cuisines. So to say, oh, India, Sri Lanka, I think is sort of a temptation that trend watchers, especially Western-focused trend watchers, are likely to do, but it's unfair and reductive and just not not a very nice way to, to honor uh, cuisines that are different and have very rich heritages of their own. On the other hand, the increasing popularity and visibility of Indian food in the United States is probably good for Sri Lankan food, uh, which is a much smaller country and, and is represented much less in, in U.S. cooking. In fact, uh, Sam for my guest today, is uh, one of the only uh, Sri Lankan chefs that I know of in the United States. Um, she's actually uh, an American from Lexington, Kentucky, but she's of Sri Lankan heritage. But the reason that the popularity of Indian food will probably help with the visibility of Sri Lankan food is, it has to do with how uh, international cuisines get accepted in the United States. For many years, for decades, the three big international cuisines in the U.S. have been Mexican, Italian, and Chinese, not necessarily in that order. For many years, Italian was the predominant one, then Chinese, now Mexican. But from there, uh, our sort of awareness or acceptance of broader cuisines kind of goes out in concentric circles. So from Italian cuisine, we could then work to embrace Spanish cuisine, Greek cuisine, uh, more broadly Mediterranean cuisine, uh, already having an understanding of what sort of food we might expect. And then from China, we went outward to Japan, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, Korean is probably the uh, hottest, fastest growing uh, Asian cuisine at the moment. But if you start with China and then expand out from there, uh, it, it gives consumers sort of a, a base from which to expand their knowledge. And we need that. We need to have something that's pretty comfortable so that we can then try things that are a little bit different. And then, of course, from Mexico you expand more broadly to the Caribbean, 
and Peru in particular, but also elsewhere in uh, Central and South America. So the fact that Indian cuisine is popular has probably helped uh, pave the way for Sri Lankan American chefs like Sam Four. Um, I think one reason that it's taken so long for Indian cuisine to really gain a foothold in the United States is because it didn't fit into any of those other categories. Chinese and Indian food are too different for us to uh, say, well, they're all Asian. They're not, I mean, that's sort of a silly way to think of food anyway. I mean, Chinese food and Japanese food don't have a whole lot in common except for rice. Uh, and Thai food is quite different from both of those two. And those were for a long time, the three kind of uh, anchor cuisines of uh, Asian cuisine in America. Now, of course, that's all over the place. So India sort of was on its, on its own. And uh, now we are seeing uh, more Indian food in more places. Uh, for example, Doghouse just, uh, which is a hot dog chain, recently had a uh, chicken tikka hot dog for uh, a, a monthly special. And the sports bar concept, Miller's Ale House, has a basically a kati roll, which is, you know, sort of an Indian wrap, uh, but featuring its zingers, chicken tenders. But with a uh, chicken tikka flavor palette and... Uh, uh, Miller's Ale House executives said, in fact, that was the intention to introduce a uh, kati roll to a sports bar. So now uh, my guest uh, for this episode is Sam Four, a delightful person with a, an interesting background because she started out with pop-ups and got such wide recognition just for her pop-up uh, Tuk Tuk Sri Lankan Bites that she got a James Beard Award nomination. She cooked at all the festivals and at the Culinary Institute of America's Worlds of Flavor Conference, which is a pretty prestigious con conference to be asked to cook at. All of that before she opened her own restaurant, which she did last week in her hometown of Lexington, Kentucky, uh, Tuk Tuk Snack Shop. Uh, a tuk-tuk, by the way, is a uh, three-wheeled three-wheeled motor vehicle that um, is small. Generally, has some sort of like uh, seating in the back, sort of like um, usually two rows, kind of in a in a pickup truck kind of looking situation. And it's called a tuk-tuk because it has little motors that go tuk 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 tuk, -tuk. and that's where the name comes from. At any rate, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sam Four because here it is. How you doing, Sam Four? Nice to meet you, Brett Thorne. It's uh, never, never a dull moment, honestly. Yes. Well, yeah. Nobody goes into the restaurant industry for like the easy hours or yeah, the fast bucks. No, definitely not. Now, you've been cooking for a long time, mm -hmm. but you're opening Tuk Tuk Snack Shop. Snack Shop, thank you. But you also had Tuk Tuk Sri Lankan Bites. Bites. And so 
that was a was that a, a restaurant or a pop-up or how that was just a pop-up i was okay. um took sri lankan bites started in the tent and then it grew to the point that we could basically go around to other kitchens take over for the night and do like what it, basically what everyone else is doing now and traveling around and and um you know doing a one night sort of food stand and, or take over a menu at spot for a night I've, I've gotten to take over menus in some really amazing places with some really amazing chefs and so it became a, a huge learning experience for me but most of the time when people do pop-ups they don't end up becoming famous chefs which you are now <laughs> have been for a while I mean, I think I saw you demonstrate at Worlds of Flavor, what, two, three years ago, something like that? Yeah, I'm actually going back in November. Oh, I'll be there too. We'll hang nice. out. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so I'm how- the chicken this year. What are you doing? Fried chicken. Oh, I like fried chicken. See, there we go. Well, and that's sort of your, your shtick is uh, Sri Lankan meets Southern, right? Yeah, the fried chicken is really what made it take off. I, I was doing ribs initially, and that got the local following. And then when I started to do fried chicken, like people were showing up from all over the place. And a lot of people who I didn't know who they were, because I don't really have that sort of traditional culinary background. And so, uh, yeah, I was sending, I was like telling people, I was like, I don't know who you are, um, but the tent's not ready yet, so you have to wait. And then a friend of mine would text me the next day, like, do you know that that's the person who wrote the book on fried chicken? And I'm like, oh, oops. Well, <laughs> and still, you can't just show up before you've opened. And, you know, anyone who says, don't you know who I am is a jerk. And oh, no, they didn't do that. The, my friend did. Yeah, you're She's like, do you no. Know yeah, so. I mean, I imagine if that person had contacted you and said, I'd really love to whatever and so on, you would you would figure out how to possibly make accommodations where you can't just show up and expect special treatment. Come on. No, they were just early. So, okay. All right. I, right. I rectified it later. I, I made sure to, to get in touch and we definitely had fried chicken together and it was wonderful. But uh, it, it's been a very interesting learning curve. Um, well, for, how... How so? What have you learned? Uh, yeah, I like to ask multiple part questions for no Absolutely. reason except to get it off, off of, out of my main, my brain and mouth, which clearly I'm having trouble with today. But I'm just going to ask the one question first. What did you learn? I mean, from kitchen to kitchen, from pop-up to pop-up, it's a lot of thinking on your feet. Um, I think what I've learned is that everything that can go wrong will go wrong at some point. So you might as well be prepared for it. Um, and that has kind of made, I mean, honestly, this process of opening this restaurant, you know, it's had its challenges, but it hasn't been anything that's been derailing me. You know what I'm saying? It's like a lot of people can get discouraged at the first sign of resistance or at the first sign of something going weird and they can get very, you know, kind of taken aback by that. But with me, I'm like, yeah, it'll be fine. I can, I can fix that. No worries. Good job. And, and do you think that came from doing pop-ups, which are. Absolutely. I mean, I had one pop-up where my, like the gal that I'd hired to help me with prep, her house was on fire. And then. I didn't laugh, but come on. I, I mean, yeah, the, her house was on fire. So she called and she's like, I'm going to be late. I'm like, no, you go take care of that. So I pulled in like everybody to prep, but then some of the, one of the servers got arrested on the way to work. And then the dishwasher thought that this was his time to shine. So he took over the line and everything was like 86th within five minutes. 
And it's just, you know, I survived that though. It's like every day is different, but you don't have to do the bad ones over again. And you've survived the bad ones. So you know that you can get through it anyway. So like it wasn't, it was still a very good pop-up, all things considered. Well, that's that's the sign I think of, of a, a great chef that <laughs> the kitchen could catch on fire and the, the ceiling could collapse and destroy all the kitchen equipment. And if you're doing your job, people in the dining room have no idea. And you nobody had any idea. I mean, it was a very full dining room, but nobody had any idea. That's great. So what, how did the, like good for the dishwasher, like trying to step up, but how was everything 86 so quickly? Um, because he was sending out doubles because he had the expo ticket and the fire ticket. So he was sending out doubles of everything. So I felt very bad for him because he was really, he was trying to help, you know? And I'm a bit more patient, I think, because I've been on the outside for so long that I think he expected to get excoriated by me. And I was just like, nah, it happens. We'll just figure it out. It'll be fine. And that's, you know, the tent taught me that working in a 10 by 10 tent in all kinds of weather with all kinds of equipment. You know, I mean, a lot of the times I was working on household equipment and, you know, being able to create a consistent solid product for that, it wasn't easy, but somehow we made it happen. And that was the most important thing is that ultimately that we had happy diners that were going to espouse the great times and all the virtues of what we were doing. And that's honestly what has carried me. It's because like the food can go so far, but it's the experience that's really speaking to people and really made this brick and mortar happen. Uh, what a great segue to lead me into the opening coming any moment now, September 22nd. September 22nd. Yeah, we're less than three weeks out. Tuk Tuk Snack Shop. Um, and I love it. I mean, I'm sitting in it right now. So I'm, I'm here a lot now. So well, it's nice to have a home. Um, and so how did that come about, the, the creation of this, the, the snack shop? Snack shop, I resisted opening a brick and mortar for about seven years. I had a lot of options. I was going to go in behind the bar where we started and, you know, the paperwork side of that didn't work out. And then uh, I was going to other shops and stuff like that. And, you know, leases would come up, but it ultimately never really materialized into anything that I could do. And so when things don't really work, you kind of take a minute and say, okay, why isn't this working? And it might've been because we weren't prepared or we weren't ready for it. But this, this spot that we're in right now, um, it used to be a coffee shop and the lease came up and it was expiring in like October, I think in October of last year, actually a year ago, almost, um, I was in the process of submitting a letter of intent because I don't know, it just, this felt like the right space. And it's one of those things where my gut feeling has been guiding a lot of this. And I really hope that that's an okay thing to guide all of this because this is a very big sort of thing. Let me switch rooms really quick. It's like, I've never had an office before. That's pretty fun. Yeah, when, you have, when you're used to working out of a hundred square feet, you know, 1800 becomes a huge luxury. And so like, it just, it was the right place. It's a few minutes from my house. It is just off the main drag where so many people test out. Like Lexington is a place where people test out franchises. So it's just off this main drag that leads to the stadium within two miles of the school. And I was just like, you know what? There's nothing on the South side of town. 
that really has this vibe. So let's try it. And if nothing else, we're going to have a good time. <laughs> and if it succeeds, amazing. And if it doesn't, at least we learn some things along the way. But I've got a good feeling about it. I really do have a good feeling about the space. That's that's great. And are, are you from Lexington? Yeah, I was born here. That's I moved cool. back. moved back in 2012. So about 11 years ago. Where'd you move from? I was in Boston for 11 years prior. And before that, I was in North Carolina. I see. And so what is the menu going to be like at Tuk Tuk's Next Shop? It's kind of a callback to all of the things that people love in the tent. But then all of the things that have kind of carried. So like the tomato pie is, is going to be around. It's just going to be around as a hand pie. That's what you demonstrated at Worlds of Flavor, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that tomato pie was... That that recipe went viral beyond viral. I mean, I never saw that coming um, because I'd never really made a tomato pie recipe before. And with that, it was just like my favorite cheese toast recipe from Sri Lanka with, you know, dehydrated tomatoes on top with a little bit of spice blend. It has every year I get pictures of it from wow. people who have made it. And it's like it's like the first day of school for people's kids. They get super excited and like they post their kids with their backpacks up. That's tomato pie season for me. <laughs> hmm. and, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a marriage of, of Sri Lanka and the South. We have a fried chicken sandwich that has everything in the brine that I would put into a chicken curry. We have rice bowls, but on the rice bowls, you can get fried chicken and, you know, various and sundry sides that are all kind of seasonal and dependent on what we can get in town and, you know, what is the best for that time. And so we have a lot of local relationships that we can use to, to make these things happen, which I'm very excited about because for years it's been like, okay, I can source locally for my pop-ups, but they're not consistent. They're not constant. And so if I'm going to source locally for my pop-ups, I want to make sure that I'm doing it in a responsible way and a sustainable way and in a way that helps kind of, you know, preserve and, and uh, offer offer some relief to our family farms here in, in Kentucky, because I mean, we have the best agricultural systems here for tomatoes and, and all the good growing season stuffs. So Kentucky is a little bounty agriculturally. That's nice. And if yeah. you want, I bet you can go across the border and get stuff in Ohio or Tennessee. Absolutely. Yeah. I kind of like to think of, of cooking local is within a 200 mile radius. That seems reasonable. Yeah, and, and that's something that I learned from a pop-up I did in Los Angeles with the One Hotels. And they're very focused on, you know, sustainability in action. And, you know, we sourced everything for my dinner within 200 miles. And was it a challenge for some things? Yes, but it was a worthwhile challenge because I got to feed those farmers at that dinner and they're like, oh, wow, we never saw this as a thing. Like we've never had these flavors with our food. We've never seen this as an option. And, and Sri Lankan food is so underrepresented in this country that, you know, I kind of have my own lane. And I think that's why I've been able to get as far as I've been able to get is because I'm the only one doing this. So yeah, yeah a lot of Indians, quite a few Pakistanis, some Bangladeshis, but Sri Lankan Southerners. Mm -mm. So, and certainly if you, if you combine it with Southern cooking and you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what do you think, this is kind of a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, are the distinguishing characteristics of Sri Lankan food as opposed to, say, Southern Indian food or whatever else? That's not a dumb question at all. Okay. That's a very good question. Okay. Um, 
So I like to describe Sri Lankan food as the love child of South Indian, like Kerala cuisine, and a bit of Thai because we have that coconut milk factor, that lime factor. You know, you've got a lot of seafood because we are an island, but we use that seafood for the umami in a lot of our dishes. A lot of people use multi-fish chips. I have had to kind of figure out vegetable umami because I do a lot of vegan and vegetarian options. So tomato powder has been very helpful with that. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it's about, we have so many different flavors and so many different influences as a country, largely because of the trade routes through colonial times and, and even now. And so it's, it's about using the best of those spices and, you know, really trying to highlight what I've got. But I use so much coconut milk, so much lime, and it's that sort of richness without heaviness, I think. And that zing of spice without being just a bit too much. Because sometimes, sometimes Sri Lankan food can be pretty spicy, but I don't believe in spice without purpose. So. Well, and, and if it's if something is too spicy for people to enjoy the rest of the food, then there's no point. It's not a meal, you know. Right. It's this is a lot of my memories were made over Sri Lankan meals with family, and I don't remember, you know, being spiced out. I remember making my perfect bites. And so I try to kind of recreate those perfect bites for people so that they can have that sort of same sort of flavor experience. That's cool. Yeah, I, I lived in Thailand for a while and learned early on that that Buddhism came to Thailand from Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. I wondered if at the same time, coconut milk like went one way or the other. There was a, you know, a, a cultural- a lot of exchange, honestly, because yeah. coconuts are so plentiful in Sri Lanka and in that region. But then you look at things like okra that came through Africa and eggplant and tomatoes. And, you know, there's stuff that grows in the hill country that doesn't grow across Sri Lanka that became a part of Sri Lankan, you know, growing seasons because of the English influence. And, you know, with the Dutch burgers, you have the lump rice, you have like different various vehicles of basically serving up Sri Lankan cuisine. It's, I, I told somebody recently, I was like, if I had to master all of Sri Lankan cuisine, it would take me a lifetime because there's so many different regional sort of cooking things and so many different ethnic groups that representing all of them became, you know, it's like, okay, I could go full Sri Lankan and try to represent everybody, or I could just represent what I know and, and what I know how to do. And so that's kind of where I ended up with this concept. It's like, okay, I know I can make a good fried chicken. Why don't I try to make it? So it has all these flavors that I love. So people can use it as a gateway because if somebody tries a fried chicken with a curry brine, they might try a chicken curry the next time they come through. If they have a pork rib that's been dry rubbed and smoked with my meatball spices, they might try the meatball curry next. And from there, it kind of expands. And so I'm kind of watching these people, especially the ones who say that they're very picky eaters, they are expanding their horizons a bit. And that's very exciting because that's the kind of, that's what I was going for. That's you know, awesome. I, I started this out just to kind of proliferate the flavors that I love. And uh, if, if this is the result of it, I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> and where in Sri Lanka is your family from? Uh, part of my family lives in Kandy and the other part lives in Nigumbo, but most everyone pretty much ends up in Colombo in some way, shape or form. Um, but a little bit north of the capital, a little, you know, seaside town of Nigumbo and then Kandy's the mountains where you've got tea and vanilla and all sorts of like native uh, cloves, cinnamon. You know, it's, it's amazing the exposure to spices that you get just from being in Sri Lanka. 
and Colombo's the capital. Yes, Colombo's the capital. So many cuisines have sort of a kind of a sofrito or a base of, of ingredients that their food has. In in France, it's a mirepoix. Mm-hmm. In the Caribbean or in, in Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, it's sofrito and et, et cetera. Um, it's chili, ginger, garlic in my kitchen uh, when I'm cooking. Mine's onions, ginger, garlic, uh, and curry leaves. And uh, curry leaves are critical. So they have to be a part of it because it's just, there's so many herbaceous factors to Sri Lankan food. And one of the things that like, we do use curry powder. I know that a lot of folks are like, oh no, it's a masala. And I'm like, no, it's it's a curry powder. <laughs> it's, it's just how it's been because of the influence over the ages. But it's, it's one of those things where, you know, the curry powder has such a big root in the curry leaf that those things have to, we're building essentially, we're building a house with different flavors. And you might have a little bit different of a base. You might have a different, you know, sort of roast to the curry powder for a deeper protein or for a deeper vegetable, but it gives you a lot of versatility. And so you're kind of layering flavors on flavors on flavors, starting with that onion, ginger, garlic, curry leaf, and then you're going to use a bit of curry powder. Then you add in your proteins and you add in, you know, a little bit of coconut milk for richness. You have a lot of options on, on how you construct your curry. it's it's fun i would think so do you only use one kind of curry powder no i use a couple um i use i predominantly use about four of them so the unroasted which is just the raw spices all ground together the roasted which is just a slight toasting on it i like to use that for chicken um the dark roasted i love to use on pork or anything that has a long low slow cook i also use it on jackfruit it's like a big it's got a big depth of flavor i like to accent it with tamarind for a little bit of sourness and then i like to use the jaffna curry powder which is predominantly used in northern sri lanka and that is a lot spicier they use a lot more cayenne and a lot more chili powder in it but it's got such a fun it plays so well with tomato and citrus that it makes seafood a star. That's cool. You know, when you were describing the different uh, sort of roasting level of curry powder, my brain immediately went to a Cajun roux and a exactly, exactly the same concept. It's the the deeper the roux, the deeper the flavor. It's the same same concept with Sri Lankan curry powder. So you get you get uh, natural sort of um, synergies with Southern food anyway. Exactly. Well, it's, I mean, you know, food is, it's, it's a universal language in a way that, you know, so many techniques have traveled and toasting and opening up those spices is really what sets a lot of our food apart. And we don't, we're not just adding them, we're openly letting them bloom into a part of the dish. Yeah. And, and you basically, as I understand it, you, you do that by heating it until you can smell it and then it's, you've done it. Exactly. Which is yeah, I do that when I cook too. Exactly. It's it's I mean, cook it till it tastes good, cook it till it smells good. And so yeah, you well, do, I do a lot of things by scent, honestly. Yeah. Does it smell good when it's starting out? Good, then it's gonna turn out well. Yeah, and and especially if you're using local produce, it's all a little different every time. And so you just have to taste it and see what it's gonna be like. And you just have to be able to adjust. So we got the fried chicken on the menu. Uh, what, and the tomato pie. 
tomato pie. We have a pork sandwich that is a pulled pork curry. Mm. We have a uh, a meatball sandwich, which is basically I did meatballs and pineapples at our first pop up, and people went insane over the meatballs. So I have it in a sandwich with some curried, um, with some actually with some stir fried spinach and a little bit of sambal. I'm really focusing on the sambals here because uh, sambal, S-A-M-B-O-L, is a condiment essentially in Sri Lanka and they have so many different kinds, but I'm really focusing on three of them. And I'm focusing on pul sambal, which is coconut, which is ubiquitous across Sri Lanka. Everyone likes to put it on their food. It's delicious. Um, sini sambal, which is the tamarind onions that were on that tomato pie. And then lunamiris, which translates into salt chili. And so I do salt and chili with a bunch of shallots just because it's a little bit milder than the red onion that I would use typically at home. And so I'm using that to kind of make a more nuanced, uh, perfect bite for folks. Mm, that sounds great. And the sambal is just sort of a condiment. condiment. Yeah. We've got jackfruit for our vegetarian and vegan friends, and that's going to be cooked essentially the same way as the pork curry is. And so it's, you know, it's showing the versatility of different sort of components um, in making a very similar dish. You know, my jackfruit, people mistake it for pork all the time, but it's completely vegan. Wow, great. Then you're doing a good job because I've had jackfruit that tastes like jackfruit, which I like. If it's ripe jackfruit, I like that. If it's but... ripe jackfruit, but I'm using the young stuff. So you right. don't want it to taste like that because that's essentially just like eating hearts of palm repeatedly. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah, when I was in the tropics, I would eat jackfruit ripe for fun. But oh, absolutely. It's, it's very difficult to cut. <laughs> well, it's, it's individual it's, little pods. Yeah. Yeah, it's very sticky. Like it's a um, the big spiny bit that you get the pods out of. It's just sticks to everything. You have to put down newspaper. You have to oil up your knives and all that. And it's a big mess. So it's when I use the younger jackfruit, it makes my life a little bit easier. Yeah. Well, and, and then it has uh, more of a neutral flavor. So it's more of, exactly. a, of a blank canvas for you to do whatever it is you do with your pulled pork. Yeah, exactly. And so that also, it's, you know, I have a firm belief that everyone should be able to eat. So I don't want to be exclusive in that way. I, I, I've got something for everybody. And do you anticipate a lot of vegetarian customers? I don't know the demographic. I do, actually, because that's what made the tent take off. Oh, okay. I had um, our first night somebody posted on a vegan vegetarian group that we were serving vegan and vegetarian options at this tent and we sold out within four hours Whoa. yeah and it's it's interesting because you know a lot of people make a fuss about accommodations for people but if you have something that's naturally able to accommodate like it's not like i'm changing anything to make it vegetarian or vegan it's naturally that way that's just how it's prepared and so if you leave that option in people are pretty pleased about that and so I have a lot of, you know, celiac uh, followers that know that I do a completely gluten-free fryer because I'm frying lentils, not anything with wheat on it. And so they have that option now and they're like, okay, I know I can dine here and I know that it's safe. So they become our like sort of in marketing terms, it's called a super heavy user. It's, you know, they really become our evangelists and they tell people about us and then that grows and grows and grows. And it's like, it's not like we leave the meat eaters out. We've got fried chicken, we've got curry ribs, we've got meatballs, we've got various and sundry, you know, specials on the menu. Nobody gets left out. 
Well, and also meat eaters eat vegetables too most of the time. Occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I know Indian cuisine has is naturally vegetarian for various religious and economic reasons. Is that also true in Sri Lanka? Uh, there's such a difference in the population makeup that I think it's just the fact that everyone's different. There are folks with the religious sort of caveats to their food. I've never had them. Um, you know, I, I was raised Buddhist. It's We still kind of ate everything. So... I've never had that sort of caveat placed on me as a cook. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, so if there are caveats, obviously. I can, cook, I can cook beef, I can cook pork. It's it's nothing against anything for me. That, that makes your life simpler. So how did you get into uh, cooking food for money? <laughs> I ask myself that a lot. Um, <laughs> it was accidental. Uh, I was... Um, when we first moved back, I was inviting people to the house for brunch because that's how we made, you know, that's how we basically cultivated our friendships is over food. In Boston, I would do the same thing. Uh, we would throw a derby party. We would throw something that would, you know, bring everyone together. But the thing is, is that here, I would invite eight or nine people over and suddenly 40 people would be at my door. Oh, and that is not sustainable for a very small house. It's just not. No. And yeah, it started It started to kind of like, it was February of 16. I was sitting at the bar and I was like, dude, I can't get all these people out of my house. And the bartender goes, we can't get a food truck here to save our lives. And I'm like, well, I'm not buying a truck just because of that. But let's see if this thing has any possibility. And so I was like, all right, we'll do one day right around Sri Lanka New Year, we'll hook it to an event, so at least I'll make my money back. And we sold out that first night. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I made a profit my first night because my startup costs were so low for a tent. That's unheard of. And so it's, you know, I had a $200 profit that night. It blew my mind. Job. Yeah. So when is Sri Lanka New Year? Uh, in mid-April. Oh, so similar to other Theravada Buddhist New Year. Exactly. Yeah, I was raised Theravada Buddhist, so right is. on. Do you guys also have water fights like they do in Thailand? On no, not, not really. I mean, I know it was intended as more of a cleansing purification thing, and it just became a national water fight in Thailand at some point. I mean, I'm not mad at it. I'd do it, but yeah. maybe, maybe we'll do that for one of the Tuk Tuk New Year parties. Who knows? It's fun. Right. Um, and... I had another question and I, I just lost it. Something about, oh, why did you invite people for dinner and they bring a bunch of friends uninvited? Like, how does it happen that 40 people show up? Wow. It became the worst kept secret in town. Like, hey, I heard you were cooking. And I'm like, hmm. It so, doesn't mean you're allowed to come though. Exactly. Well, no, but it was always like friends of friends and stuff like that. So it's like, I never feel right turning people away. And I always cooked a lot. So everyone got fed. It's just that last one where I invited nine and like 40 showed up. I was like, you know, I can't do this anymore. It's too much. And they're like, well, why don't you get paid for it? I'm like, fine. And I thought it would only last once or twice, but it, we kept selling out and then it got bigger. And then we went across the country and then those would sell out. And I'm like, I'm like I, I, it still mystifies me that people have even heard of me. So. Well, congratulations on having been heard of. Right? Isn't that funny? <laughs> uh, opening your restaurant in uh, Tuk Tuk Snack Shop in, in Lexington, Kentucky. In Lexington, Kentucky? Yeah. 
And uh, it was a pleasure hanging out with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, it was great to chat. And I'll see you in November. Yes, at CIA Worlds of Flavor. Absolutely. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Me too.